this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Hey everyone. This week we skipped our normal intro and jumped right into our conversation with Mr. Eli Janney, who you might know from a band called Girls Against Boys, and who is currently the keyboardist and associate music director of the 8G band for Late Night with Seth Meyers. Let's go to the interview. Eli. Hello. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. Let me add my co-host in so we are uh we have our We get the full going. team. Yeah, the full team going here. Oh my gosh, listen to that hiss. It's amazing. Yeah, you can't um you can't judge this based on professional recording, you know, <laughs> standards. It's not actually a recording. It's not a recording podcast. Is that what you're trying to tell no, me? Well, <laughs> we're not recording focused. That's We're not forward recording thinking, uh, however you want to put it. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm operating off of a, a, a blue snowball USB mic with a. That pop- sounds, it, it actually sounds okay. My, my pop screen has both duct tape and packing tape. To keep it in one piece because it's nice. like twenty years you, old. You got to have both, of course. You right, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm, well, it's funny because I, uh, I'm actually at my friend's house. Our, we're going out over to our friend's house for drinks, right? So okay. I'm like, well, I'll just bring my laptop, and so I have my son's gaming headset with that has a microphone on it. So that's what I'm using. That's what I'm rocking over here. All right, so you might be toggling between this and some Call of Duty, is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so if you hear me scream, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. No. <clears throat> nice. Awesome. So I'll introduce us. I'm Tim. My co-host is Jay. Uh, Hello. Say hi, Hello, Jay. Hello, Jay. Wow. Jay is in Austin, Texas, and he hauled ass to get to get started because <laughs> he nice. has like an hour and a half commute. Back and forth to work each day. Through, oh, right on. Through Austin traffic. So he was like, I'm running in the door. It's 7.58. I'm like, I'm all right. I, I'm putting the kid to bed. So I grabbed a drink. I'm ready to go. All right. I, I might be the only one not imbibing. I just have a seltzer. So uh, That's because you're straight edge, bro. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a time limit? I, I don't want to keep you too long. So... If you want to tell us up front, that's fine. That way, I'll just keep my eye on the clock. Um, I mean, a half an hour, forty minutes, something like that. I don't know. We can how do much, How long do you usually go? We've gone anywhere from a half hour, and then when we had Jay Robbins on, he's a very talkative mm-hmm. fellow. He was on for two and a half hours. Nice. <laughs> I mean, two and a half hours. Wow. We went into the weeds. I mean, we were talking like, what's the guitar tone? What What was your rig set up? on uh on uh, this particular song you know what was your pe- what, using a which pedal was this and i mean we got wow. into it yeah 
and he remembered that stuff. That's that was my fear when I was when I was thinking about oh they're going to ask me all this stuff. That, this is going to be one of those weird interviews where you know more about the situation than I do. You're like I don't remember. And you're like yeah you were doing this and that. I'm like oh, okay. I believe you. I don't know. We'll we'll try to keep this to broad strokes then, and, and I won't ask you about particular <laughs> synthesizer effects loops or pads no, that you were using. I mean, you can try. Go <laughs> ahead, and I'll just answer whatever I can. Let's get into our, our question and answer period. <laughs> question time, as they say over in, in the UK. <laughs> so for folks who listen to our podcast, who we're 90-centric, and, and they're going to know Girls Against Boys, not only because we have covered them, we've talked about them on various episodes. We did a re- album review back a couple years ago. But some folks might not know, especially uh, people my age who are in their 40s and have kids and go to bed at 10 o'clock every night. They might not know what your current gig is. So, yeah. which is, which is your, you play keys and you're the assistant music director for uh, the 8G band for Seth Meyers. That's right. I, I'm, I'm the, I'm actually associate, associate music director, associate. not assistant. That's okay. a, that's different, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, associate music director. I mean, I, I'm, uh, Fred Armisen is, is the music director. I'm okay. basically the band leader. He's the, he is the band leader, but when he's there, but he's not there most of the time. So I'm kind of the default band leader so, um, and I play keys and yeah, I would imagine that's not like a normal band audition where you go to some person's house or they come to your house and you jam in the basement for an hour and <laughs> see if it feels good. Like what's the process for joining a late night show band? Well, it, this was probably the strangest concoction of a late night band because basically they had started working on the show, forming the show, and I think the music was very much a last minute thing. They were going to have a DJ, apparently. This is as legend goes. They were going to have a DJ, and then they just thought that's not going to work. First, they were going to have no music, I think, which I don't know how that would have worked. Just silence. Then they were going to have a yeah, it was like no. I think I think probably just like canned music every time. It's, Oof. But that that would have made for one lonely set out there. So then they had a they were gonna have a DJ, but I think uh, legend has it that Lorne Michaels was like, "That's a terrible idea. You don't want to do that." And so then he said, "I know. Well, I'll call Fred. He's a musician, and we, he can put together a band." So they basically said to Fred, "You want to put together a band?" Fred said, yes, I'd love to do it. Here's my idea. I want to make an indie rock band for late night. And this is the first, you know, no one's ever had an indie rock band as a late night band. So let's let's do that. So I cut to me sitting in a dentist chair. I haven't talked to Fred. I've run into him. Like, I'm. first of all, a little background. Like, I met Fred, I think, in 93, when Trenchmouth, his then band that he was drumming for, opened for Girls Against Boys somewhere on the road and kind of became friends with him. And he spent a lot of time in D.C. after that. But we we were, we were friends. But then when he joined SNL, I didn't really see him very much. And I would only communicate with him very sporadically. And then I just get this text from him out of the blue like, hey, I got this project I think you'd be perfect for um, give me a call. And so I called him and he was like, yeah, so, uh, it's kind of weird. Um, 
I think I, I'm trying to put together a band for the new late night show. Uh, and I want you to play keys in it. And I'm like, oh, sure. That sounds great. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is never going to fly. Like NBC is never going to let us like have a, <laughs> have a, a sort of questionable quality indie rock band play on the show. But we just forged ahead. We got Sid Butler and uh, Seth Jabor from La Savi Favre. And then we kind of, we act, originally we were going to have Matt Schultz, who plays in Holy Fuck, but he's played in Enon for a while. He played in a bunch of great bands. And now he plays in Savak as well. And he, uh, but for various reasons, we didn't end up having Matt. And so we had a little drum auditions. But then in, uh, after a while, Fred ended up being our drummer and we got Marnie Stern to play the second guitar. And that was the band. And basically, we just had our third year anniversary actually yesterday. So we've been doing it for three years, 490-something shows. We're almost to 500. And somehow they've let us keep doing it. So I, I wonder if um, Fallon having it – was it's Fallon that has the roots, right? Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that maybe kicked the door open a little bit because – Usually a band was like this, you know, Kevin yeah. Eubanks led, yeah, you know, jazzy, kinda jazzy like kind of band, session guys, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so, and I think that helped a lot. And I, at actually, at one point, they were considering having just taking a band wholesale, and just like because Fred said to me, "What about if Girls Against Boys was the house band?" And I was like, "Sure, we, <laughs> we would love to do it," you know, like. <laughs> And I know that he also had talked to John Spencer about the blues explosion being the house band. Oh my God. And so, which they would have great. taken over the show. But I think actually, I think that NBC basically wanted to have more ownership of the band so that they could fire at will basically. Um, so it's, it actually, the thing, it's a, it's a very odd job it's a great great job and i love doing it but it's not as musical as you might think because really you're you're kind of playing background music for a comedy show and when the steve the stage manager cues me we have to stop the song doesn't matter where we are in the song so it's a little bit like it's it's very odd musically to do that but so it might it might not be where you just have to know how to just at a moment's notice just yeah, play out. You got to play out right there. That's wow. it. You got three seconds. End it. Uh, yeah. And so what what's developed is because since Fred is our drummer, but he's gone most of the time is now we have a rotating guest drummers, which has been super, super fun. Um, you know, we've we've had so many people. So many great drummers on. We've had Abe Laboreal Jr., who's Paul McCartney's drummer, Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine. We had Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and Pearl Gen. We've we've had Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We've had just every week it's a new drummer. It's the craziest thing. And you can imagine, you know, now now we've done it. We've been doing it a lot. So as a group, as the HE band as a group, we know how to deal with these drummers who every drummer has a different feel. They have a different way that they play the kick drum and they have different 
you know, and, and so it does keep it very interesting, but it's a crazy, crazy job try, trying to integrate a new person every Monday. Isn't Plus, that sort of rock bands in a microcosm there? You're just cycling through drummers. <laughs> it's like very sped up version of yeah it's or it's you know, like any dc band basically right <laughs> but but yeah it it's it's been a crazy job i can't believe i've been doing it for three years actually so in looking back at your musical history i know you are originally from dc and sort of grew up i'm guessing you were in your you were adolescent and teen in the eighties. Um, yeah. So you grew up with that sort of underground punk scene that was going on in, in the eighties uh, in DC and reading about that. And then sort of tying this into the, the current gig, you decided to move um, from DC to New York. I think it was 91. Yeah. Um, what was the genesis of making that move? Because I think there's a, a really interesting like musical scene happening in New York there that a lot of people don't really recognize, which is sort of like this heavy, aggressive, but melodic scene that was developing with like Chavez and Quicksand and Helmet and Cop Shoot Cop, like all of these like yeah. heavy bands, but they they had a sense of melody that maybe some heavier, more post-punk bands or hard rock bands didn't have. And I was wondering what drew you to New York at that time. Um, basically what happened was, uh, yeah, it, it is funny looking back on it now because I started working at inner ear studios as an engineer in 1986. And so, well, I wouldn't call myself an engineer in 1986, but I started working for Don in 1986 and so by 91 i was had this great life in dc i was working all the time making lots of interesting records for you know i worked with uh, with jay on Jawbox records and i worked i was working with ian in the studio a lot and it, it was really and i lived in a house with some friends i had a car and i had a vespa and all this stuff and and then <laughs> scott scott and they're all the rest of the guys in, in Girls Against Boys, Scott, Johnny, and Alexis, had already moved to New York. And they had a band. They actually had a band with Mike Fellows. And it was called Little Baby Sound System, I think, or something like that. Little Baby. And then that fell apart. And so Scott, previous to that, we had done a studio project called Girls Against Boys that I had done some stuff with Brendan Canty and then I did, and then some stuff with Scott and actually, and Johnny and Alexis, I think too. And so Scott called me and was like, Hey, so little baby kind of, you know, we, we were close friends. We talked a lot, but he's like, why don't you move up to New York and we can do girls against boys full time as a band. And so I was like, okay, great. Yeah. Everybody wants to move to New York. This is my chance. And so I moved <laughs> Like sold my car, sold the Vespa, like moved to a warehouse space in South Brooklyn, as not South Brooklyn, South Williamsburg, which at that time was a war zone. Like you can't even describe it to people because now it's like a fucking mall up there. But it's like it was a warehouse that had no kitchen in it and barely had a bathroom and was 20 feet from the uh, 
elevated train line so that every seven minutes or so you had to stop talking because it was so loud and it was miserable. And I just thought, what am I doing? But we forged on ahead and just kept making music. It was actually that, you know, you were talking, uh, you did a thing about Brainiac. Right. And that was, we were living in that warehouse space when they came to make that first record. And they they stayed there with us because it was just a huge warehouse. You could just sleep there on the bitterly cold floor. It's great. Okay, so that's how you ended up getting hooked up with them. I was going to ask about that because you were the producer on all the th- all three of the albums yeah. that they released. So they, I assume that they'd heard your work that you had done when you were in D.C. then. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, it, I, I was trying to figure out how they must have. Yeah, because we talked about it before. I, I think basically what happened was that they had reached out to Ian and then Ian or to Don at Inner Ear Studios, and they had, one of them had given Dan my info. I think maybe they were they they were just calling a bunch of people, and I was just like yes, because also I didn't really have a job in New York, you know. I went from working more than full time in D.C., just putting in huge hours in the studio, and to move to New York, I had no jobs, I had no money. I was just like, yes, some man wants to record. Yes, come to New York. Let's do it. You know, and so found some great inexpensive studios and just started making records as fast as I could up there. And they were one of the first ones I made. One of the things I wanted to um, ask you about was you'd worked on those records as a producer, but then you've also worked on records exclusively as a mixer. And I'm curious about like what you bring to that in terms of I imagine when you're doing the producing end of it it's a much longer drawn out process as opposed to like mixing seems like it's a very focused process I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference in there in terms of like your responsibilities in those two roles and if they ever like sort of you know cross over to each other at all yeah I mean, it, yeah. There's there, there's basically three jobs that I've done. There's engineer, and then there's producer, and then there's mixer, and uh, you know sometimes it's a combination of two or all three. But basically, nowadays because I have the TV job, I do just mostly just mixing, um, just because of time constraints. But as a producer, you're really more concerned with the artistic vision of the record which is a weird nebulous kind of way of putting but that's kind of what you you have to think about the entire package like as far as the the music like the songs the arrangements whether the songs are good enough whether those are the right arrangements you know it's like a lot of very simple stuff that first time bands just like you know what is the what are you trying to express with this song? Like, does the intro have to be sixteen bars? Like, you really want to pe- make people wait that long before you get to the verse? Is is the intro that is that exciting and important to you? You know what I mean? Like, that's a, right. I mean, it might be is if you're if you're trying to really set up something or build tension, maybe. But you know, this, this is the kind of things that you think about. You know, and the there was a period. I want to say like in the early 2000s when there were still recording budgets 
where I could go just produce, I would usually hire Jeff Sanoff as, to engineer it. And so I didn't even have to think about that technical side of it because it's a very different process in your brain when you're thinking about music and you're thinking about artists and you're also thinking about how the artist is performing and their sort of headspace. You want to keep the band focused. You don't want to like, you know, as a producer, you're just thinking more about the music and the band's performance. Whereas when you're an engineer, it's all technical. You're thinking about levels and microphones, microphone placement, you know, like, whether the drums are tuned properly, guitars are set up right, you know, like all these technical things, you know. And then when you're a mixer, you're basically just trying to make a finished product. No matter what's been done, you don't want to, you don't concern yourself about any arguments that the band might have had within themselves or with the producer or anything like that. All you're thinking of is just the finished product. Does it sound amazing? Can you make it sound better? You know, and I, I love mixing. I love just sitting there and listening to the song over and over again and just kind of forming a vision of that sound space that's there. You know, maybe the engineering wasn't so great. Maybe it wasn't recorded in a great space. So how can we improve that, make it more exciting, more dynamic or less, you know, or like really give it some space that, you know, the, one of the problems with modern recording is there's no limitations on the number of tracks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming from somebody, when I f- first started working at Inner Ear Studio, we had an eight track recorder, you know, and that was it. And now it's just like, I think the limit is 256 tracks. <laughs> and, and, and I have had, not recently, but I have had, I've worked with some artists who filled up every single fucking track. To the point where it's like I can't record anymore. There's no more tracks. What do you mean? It's like, dude, there's that. Stop it. You're insane. There is no reason. Anyway, what? So Poss- have, there's have, not even 256 instruments in the world. I, I mean, like no, <laughs> it's just like layers upon layers of similar things. People oh. just people just go crazy sometimes. But now it's somewhere in between. But it's it's a lot of times people avoid making decision producer producer type decisions because they don't have to technically it's like oh is this lead better or is this lead better we'll just put them all in there and then just send it off to the mixer i'm like dude this is like a producer question like you guys need to decide you know that's or the other thing that drives me bonkers is when they put three microphones on a single amp And so then I get three tracks. I'm like, well, which one, how do you want to mix these together? Because one's a bright mic, one's, you know, they all have different characteristics and they just don't make that decision. And it's like, okay, well then don't complain when I make it sound, you know, then they're like, well, it doesn't sound like the the rough mixes. Like, great. Then, you know, you guys have to decide. (laughs) I think part of it is that people don't have the budget to employ a producer. Ah, you know, you know, a, a lot of a lot of I do a lot of producing after the fact when I mix like people send me mm-hmm. stuff and it's kind of funny. I'm like, well, there's some really obvious problems with your song here. And sometimes sometimes I just cut up the song like, oh, you know, we heard that reintro twice. You don't need it again. I'm going to take it out of that third time. And sometimes I tell the band and sometimes I don't and just send it off and just be like, let's see what they say. 
And uh, all the time they're like, yeah, it sounds great. I'm like, so what do you think about that third? I took out that third uh, re-intro and they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, huh. you know, but yeah, it's it's funny that the process that people make records now is it's very different because the budgets are so much smaller because the return on sales is so much smaller. You know, having said that, I actually, I actually don't think it's a terrible thing because last few records that I've actually recorded because the budget was so small, we made them the same way we used to make the records in 1990 in DC at Don's basement studio, because everyone would get in there and just play the song and play it a few times until they got the take that sounded and felt the best. And then that was the recording. And you didn't have to, maybe you'd layer on a couple of things, but just, just the vocals had to be redone, you know, done because we didn't have enough space for vocal booth. So you do the vocals afterwards, but I, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that like the magic that happens within a band is, is what you should try to put on your record. And it's very hard to do things one at a time and not, not capture that and, and to capture that, I should say. I think that when you, you know, like when we're making records, the last, one of my last uh, favorite records I made, made was this, with this band, the tweens, which was on French kiss records, very punk kind of record. And man, it's just like, you'd go in there, you have the song. We've, we'd already talked about arrangements and stuff like that, do a little pre-production. So we knew how we wanted the songs to go. And you just get in there, they rock that song. Now, I think it could be better. You slowed down this part, you pulled back too much there, like really let it go. We do a few more takes and then all of a sudden you're like, that one, that take is amazing. And something that happens within that room, within the band, is you just can't create it any other way. And you do it quickly, so it doesn't cost a lot of money. <laughs> right. So how uh, w- one of the things that I always thought was interesting about Girls Against Boys is that the band sounds like a band, yet there's aspects of it that almost sound, I don't know, like similar to electronic music in the way that it's, I don't know, the tempos or some of the sounds. Yeah. Um, well, it's really funny. It, it's funny because the way, like, when we, in the late, 80s scott and i were listening to a lot of industrial music Mm -hmm. you know like uh you know ministry or uh einst is in the neubauten and stuff like this and we really were interested in this sort of dark kind of like machine made sounds and stuff like that so when girls again and of course coming out of the dc hardcore scene um, sort of fast and distorted stuff. And so when we first started out, we were kind of like playing with some of those sounds. And then also I play keyboards, so which was not a very popular instrument in the early 90s. You know, like mm-hmm. people just did not want to hear a keyboard, you know, at all. And they certainly didn't want to see one on stage. That first tour that we did in the U.S. was pretty rough. Like they were just, people were just like, what is that? You know, they did not want to see a keyboard on stage. Who were you touring with? That first tour, we weren't really touring with anybody. We just, I'm trying to remember. I'm sure we played some shows, but I mean, the very first tour, 
which was probably 92. Uh, it was probably early 92. I moved up to New York, as far as I can recall, at, right at the end of 91. It was like November, I believe. And so we were probably touring that April or March. Um, and we just did this like sort of, you know, we just, because Soulside had book, had, had toured a lot in the U.S., they had a lot of contacts. This is the band before that the other guys were in. Um, and a lot of DC bands toured. They shared all these contacts with places that would book you. And so they're like, oh, it's like these guys from Soulside and they're, they moved to New York, but they're from DC. So they would just book us a show. There wouldn't be very much money, but we could play. And then we would just go sleep on somebody's floor. We would literally be on stage being like, hey, does anybody have a place that we can crash? It'd be really cool. And it was like, <laughs> and it, that's how we would do it. And people would be like, yeah, you can come crash at our place. And it's like some punk rock group house. And we'd sleep on the floor. Mm-hmm. But those, those punk rock kids, when I set up the keyboard, were just like, what the fuck, man? That's not cool. <laughs> huh. <laughs> <laughs> Even with like, I mean, there was still, I mean, you, you did have, um, you know, Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and those, and th- there were still Nails, Yeah, but Nine Inch Nails was kind of later. Yeah. And, and so I played everything through a distortion pedal through an amp. And so mm-hmm. then people were like, yeah, that was pretty cool, actually, man. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But, you know. Yeah. How did you so how did you get to the two bass format how did that come well, out and and that's the thing is that like I think in the studio when we first started doing the studio I played some bass I wasn't very good at it but we were just like fuck it let's just play I I think it was kind of like yeah let's have two basses nobody else is doing that and we love like a unison it was almost like a kind of metal in a way where you have this unison thing going on everything's distorted um johnny like because johnny and i would kind of trade off the other bass player johnny temple and i would kind of trade off these riffs where okay on this song i'm gonna play up high and play this kind of riff thing and then maybe on the chorus we're both chugging down on the lower strings and then on the next song he would play a higher part and i would stay low you know we Mm kind of we we didn't explicitly set it up um, but that's kind of how we ended up doing it. But as far as why we did it, I don't really know. I think it was just kind of a spur of the moment thing. Let's try it. See how it sounds. We had two basses in the room and I didn't want to play keyboards all the time. So we started doing it and it was super, then we're like, wow, that sounds great. So that, that was it. I, I, you know, it's kind of funny because at that time there was, I, I was listening to you, you, the podcast that you guys did about, uh, Venus Luxure. And there was uh, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, which was a UK band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, co- there was Cop Shoot Cop, who are our friends. And they actually were kind of a little bit before Girls Against Boys, I, I believe, even though we are, were popular kind of around the same time. But um, yeah, and there was Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And then I, I couldn't really think of any other bands that have, I've seen a few recently but uh yeah that had two bass players but it's kind of because I think most people also weren't playing that kind of very simplified heavy distorted bass like you know like yeah you know you most a lot of people play it more funky or more jazzy or like whatever so it's mm-hmm. just like 
Well, I feel I feel like now distorted bass is the thing. <laughs> like it's I don't know. It seems like every rock song I hear now either has is based on a distorted bass line or is only a distorted bass line because it gets rid of like, well, it gets rid of all the high strings, which are grading to, you know, it, it kind of simplifies it down to that, you know, just that guttural mid range that you can put a vocal on top of. Um, yeah. Yeah. So from an engineering, I mean, you're an engineer, right? I mean, from that standpoint, it, it kind of, if you can get a good tone out of that and you have a good song, it's almost like that and a vocal and a good drum part can carry yeah. everything. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's also it's just also funny to me that like just how it's it's it really is hard to explain the disdain for keyboards during that era when we were coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, really until the le- very late part of the 90s, keyboards were dead. Like no one was playing keyboards. Yeah. It was all guitar rock. It was you know, only done whole, in like kitschy whole, ways. Yeah, the whole grunge era, no keyboards on. True. Any. It wasn't really till the 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 or, or B three the organ sounds and then like some Moog started to come. Yeah, in, the synthesizer. In the really, the synthesizer was dead in well, the yeah. early nineties. <laughs> the only people that I can remember using it was Weezer used it on the Blue Album. But they did it right. like that, you know, because it was Rick Ocasek, he did it in that Cars way. So it was kind yes. of s- just a subtle lead. And mm-hmm. then um, the only other person I can think of is like Matthew Sweet did it. So they were very like pop oriented bands. But there was, yeah. in terms of like alternative music, there was like no keyboards yeah. being played in, in any sort of a way that would be yeah. close to what you guys were doing. Yeah, that's so- true. So how did you get into, like, take me back a little bit in terms of you getting into music, deciding to play keyboards, and then who are you listening to? What kind of music are you playing? What does all that look like? Yeah. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? (laughs) You know, it's fun. I'll be totally honest with you. When I started out listening to music, it was super random. Like, I had an older brother, Eddie, who played, who was... uh, he was very involved in the DC music scene in and Discord. He lived at Discord House. He was like, you know, Ian and him and Brendan were all. He played guitar in Rites of Spring. He played guitar in The Faith. He played guitar in The Untouchables. So he like, but before that happened, I was kind of on my own. Like my parents had a lot of Beatles records. Listened to a lot of that stuff, and then I was just like. I would just go to the record store and just be like, oh, this looks interesting, having no idea what the music was. <laughs> and so I was like listening to like weird sticks, seven inches. Remember <laughs> this band, sticks? And all this sort of prog rock, I didn't understand it at all. But I was like, these are crazy covers, and I would listen to it. And so then I, I took piano lessons when I was like 10 for about a year and a half, and that was it. Because it was like classical music lessons. Oh, here's a funny story about that. I actually just saw my old piano teacher who I haven't seen in, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. And and she reiterated, this is something I had forgotten. She said that when I was, when she was teaching me piano, um, she would, she would say like, okay, this is the piece I want you to learn. And I said, oh, cool. And she put the music in front of me, which I was supposed to be studying, learning how to read, sight read, right? And she would play me the song. I'm like, oh, okay, can you play it again? And so she would play it a second time. And then basically I would learn the song by listening to her play it. 
like I couldn't read music at all. And then, and then she figured it out about a year into it. And she's like, so, and then she stopped, she stopped playing it for me. She's like, I want you to read the music and learn how to play it off the music. I'm like, Oh, okay. So, so I would, but here, but I would go home and my dad was a very accomplished piano player. And I was like, Hey dad, can you play this for me? He's like, Oh yeah, sure. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> but of course, you know, like, in the jazz world, that's way better skilled than, you know, reading. You know, of course, there are, jazz people are very well trained, so they can sight read anyway. But what they try to do is they learn how to sight read, and then they try to learn how to do what what I would do, which is just kind of like listen to what other people are doing and work off of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's funny because mm-hmm. looking back, to like the process of because on the TV show we write music every day. All that music that's on the air is all original music that we write every day. So we have this crazy writing process where we're just writing, 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 writing. We've written like over 2000 little ditties. Now I wouldn't call them songs because they don't have lyrics. It's only two parts, but they're like, we've written so many. And I go, when, when you did the podcast, when I went back after listening to the Brainiac podcast, I went back and listened to the Venus Luxure and listened to you guys talk about, how you thought the record was made and the influences and stuff like that. I was like, what was the writing process for Venus Luxury? (laughs) What the hell were we doing? Nobody knew what they were doing at all. We had listened to a lot of music that we thought was super cool. We kind of knew how to play our instruments, but not really. And then we just got into a room and we're like, this sounds cool. And so having made the the little EP, which was fully just studio, whatever. And then we made, um, the first album, which is Tropico Scorpio, mm-hmm. which was some weird, that is a weird record. Like you go back and listen to that. It's all over the place. Like trying a little jazz, a little, uh, this, that, some noisier stuff. Then we went out on the road Then I moved up to New York and we went out on the road and we started trying to play this stuff in front of people. And people were just like, what are you fucking doing? And there's nothing better than going out and playing your music in front of a crowd that just does not care or not. You, they're like, impress us. Like, you have to be good. Like, it's not people who've listened to your record and are like, yay, I'm so excited to hear these songs. These are people who just like showed up because it was a punk rock night or like there was a much more popular punk band playing after us and we just had to go out there and impress them and all of a sudden we were like shit we need to fucking amp this up somehow and so that was the process that we made venus luxure where we would be doing sound check and like starting playing a riff that's a cool riff all right let's keep let's make a song out of that and so then we and then we got back to new york and we kind of turned those things into songs and that's how venus luxure was made it was like a trial by fire album where we were just like, we didn't even really know what the identity of the band was. We just, we just hit the road. We're like, let's just go on tour. You know, it's like you're young and you're young and just doesn't matter. Do you ever miss that innocence? Do you, do you think like um, kind of the more, you know, about music um, in a way that when you're first discovering chords and different sounds and like, and then you learn more and you sort of become, I don't know, like once you know, it's kind of like once you know how it works, it, the, the, 
some of the excitement is gone, I guess. <laughs> Do you ever yeah, feel yeah. that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that is true. And and this is something, honestly, that I struggle with every day because imagine having to do that process every day. I mean, we we only shoot four days a week. So four days a week, I have to go in there and just write some stuff and be inspired and on on a clock. We get we start working at around 12:30 and then by 2:30 p.m. we have to have a full set of songs ready for that night's show. It's crazy. And not repeat yourself and be inspired. And mm-hmm. it's something that I try not to think about too much because it really is that um I can't, Nick Cave it had a great quote about your muse and how not to kill your muse. But it, it, but it is that thing where it's like, I know, um, we, we do kind of repeat ourselves a lot on, on the show because we make so much music, but at the same time, the inspiration is more important. So if we're inspired at that moment, we're going to do this type of song and we're going to use these type of riffs. It doesn't matter if we've done something similar and which is Mm -hmm. something a, a band would never do. But, for us, it's just like that inspiration and that excitement that you're talking about is more important. So if somebody's like, hey, doesn't this sound like I'm always like, eh, 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 no, 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 just keep going. Let's just yeah. keep writing this song and just think about this song and don't even think about anything else. You know what I mean? Because that it's actually works. It's actually works because you're and over the over the course of time the, this again we've been doing it for three years and we've written a couple thousand little pieces of music it actually as i can go back to the archive and listen to stuff from three years ago and i'm like oh that's very different from what we do today you know so so it does it is a course we don't know what the chart charting of that course is but we just keep going and and i think that when you're a young band starting out, that's kind of how it is. You don't want to look at, try to plot everything out. I mean, mm-hmm. this is my process. I don't know. Some people do want to plot it out, but I don't want to plot out every single move. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm just pulling in all these disparate, uh, influences, you know, some ministry here, some Tom Waits there, some like, you know, Oh, who are we? Who did we go see this week? And like you said, actually, early '90s in New York was a pretty exciting time. There was, there wasn't a lot of clubs, but CBS was still open. You could go see crazy shit there, and like, oh, let's go see some weird bands. And then, like, wow, that was cool. You get influenced from a lot of your peers too. So let's pull in all these different things that we are listening to, and just kind of like make our make our own version of that. So then, when you get to you sort of figure out, okay, this is what the band sounds like. And then well, so, how do you feel about delivering against that? Like 2013, well, you put a record out and it's like, okay, girls against boys sounds like this. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the problem. Like every band does go through that where it's just yeah. like when we made Venus Luxury number one, baby, there was no girls against boys sound. Like right. when we were making the record in a way that record kind of defined the band and then, okay, so now we got our next record. We we have to make another record. And we were like, let's try some different stuff. But we can't go too far from that first record because that's how people know us. You know what I mean? It's it's like right. it's a, it's every band has that problem where it's just like, what defines the band? What we're doing now or what was what was the popular album? You know what I mean? It's like I I, I see bands that are still going 
um, you know, years and years and years later, I'm like, I don't know how they, I don't know how you deal with that. But the last thing we did was almost kind of like, okay, you know what? Um, when I started, we, we didn't really write that together as much as we had our other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like in the studio by myself and I was just like, remember girls, how fun it was when we were first doing it and that excitement. And what, what was, what was the stuff that really excited me about that? The kind of distorted, loud, crazy sounding thing. And so I'm going to just not worry about whether or not I've done this before and just start making songs and then send them to Scott and to Johnny and, and Alexis and be like, Hey, what do you guys think about these? Mm-hmm. Let's, 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 how about turning these in? And then Scott's like, great, I got this song. Let's do that. You know, like we, we kind of like had to ignore any of those concerns in order to make something that's, you know, has some life to it. At least, right. I thought, you know what I mean? Well, it's interesting because when you describe this, the band, the band on the show, the, the constraint of time forces you to do that, right? You can't second <laughs> yeah. guess yourself because yeah, you just don't have time. Yeah. And it sounded like with that project, you had to even just force that constraint on yourselves and just say, no, yeah. to get this done, to do, to create something, I have to just block that out of my mind Yeah, that I may have done this before and just create it. Yeah. Right? And then you can always go back and edit, you know what I mean? That's the thing. It's like, mm-hmm. at least, at least allow yourself to have that creative spark. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So how on earth did you start doing a podcast just about the 90s? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, the, the the short version of that is we were both college DJs in the 90s at the same uh, college radio station. And then we were in a band together for 10 years. And, uh, okay, that's right. Yeah. And when the band was done, we kind of didn't have anything to do on like our normal <laughs> band practice night. So, so we, we would show up for practice and just not bring our inter- instruments and just, you know, we would still do the bullshitting part about music and just never practice. Yeah. Like, we should record yeah. this. <laughs> so yeah. it, that's, that's really funny. Cause <laughs> I, I did for a while, I did a podcast about recording, uh, called input output podcast. And with my buddy, Jeff Sanoff, who's a great engineer producer himself. And how it started was very similar. We, we would get together after work and drink and say like, Oh, did you see this new microphone? Oh, I heard this blah, blah, blah. Have you heard this record? The way they mix it is really cool. And and then we were like, yeah, we should record this shit, man. It's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And then a year in it's wow. Okay. This is, this is a thing. And it's actually some work. (laughs) uh, Yeah. How, how many have you done? Well, every week for this is our seventh season. Jesus. So three. This will be episode three hundred and twenty-three, I think, when it comes out. I mean, dude, I take my hats off to you. <laughs> that, that is incredible. We've never taken I, a week off. We've never missed a week in that time. Knock on wood. I, knock on fake IKEA wood. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. You've it, never I, missed one. That's that's very impressive. Now there's I, been I, weeks I, where maybe one of us wasn't present, um, for whatever reason. One of us being me. Well, you. I, I guess I've never missed an episode. You've missed a few episodes. That's—I <laughs> mean, that—that's pretty good. I mean, you know, we were—we the like I said, the show just celebrated its third year, and we had like a little champagne toast on Thursday after the show. And I was talking to Seth, and um, 
it is crazy. We've done 490, I think it was 493, something like that. And he's never missed a show. Of course, we wouldn't right. do a show without him. And uh, like I've missed, I think, three at that during that whole period because of family stuff. You know, like I just couldn't. I think actually, no, one, I was I got sick that morning with some stomach thing and I was like, I can't go on. And so yeah. I called my backup. James Canty is my backup, by the way. You know, James? No, is he related to Brendan? Yeah, Brendan's brother. He, James Canty, was in the pharmacist, the Ted Lee on the pharmacist. Oh, okay. And then he was in the makeup, and he's a he's a great DC musician. He lives up here now. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I think well, you, <laughs> Jane and I just are good at showing up every week. I think that's the... That's the yeah, that's the basic of you know, it. Is we're just good. Real, we're we're good employees. When it comes and to... you know, I I try. I'm trying to stress that to my kids. Like, just showing up is actually a, a good portion of any right. achievement. <laughs> right. Well, we 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 picked. I don't know. We stumbled on a good subject matter. Mm-hmm. In that, I don't think we've even honestly in 300 whatever episodes. We, I think we've just scratched the surface. I mean, the 90s is such a well, weird, I, I, strange decade for music. Yeah, and I have to say that it was amazing hearing you guys talk about Venus Luxure because, first of all, when you're making a record, especially at that, we, we had made a few recordings before, but this was a record where like, we're really trying to make a record. And there's nothing we could have wished for more than to have two guys sit there and dissect everything. It's like, yes, they get us. They understand us. You know, like this. It was hilarious. I'm like, this is exactly what you wish for when you're making a record. Man, this little weird riff I'm going to do there subtly on this one part, he's going to listen to it and be like, yeah, it's kind of reminiscent of that cop shoot cop thing. Yes, that's exactly what I was going for. Uh, we heard a very similar thing from uh, Kelly Scott from Failure. We did <laughs> yeah, uh, Fantastic I, Planet, and he was like, yeah, I had the same reaction. So we've only got, what, maybe 750,000 more records to do, Tim? It is so, so funny, <laughs> yeah. too. It's like, you could really just keep doing 90s, and you're never going to have a problem. Yeah. I mean, we started off uh, trying to be as obscure as we possibly could. I think, you know, we, we tried to shun the first season or so anything that was close to commercially successful. And then we've opened up to the point where we've, we've, you know, we haven't even touched on some very obvious bands and some very obvious, you know, sounds. And Mm -hmm. so it's been, I don't And I think Tim and I just try to stay out of the way, honestly. Like, I think the subject matter is interesting enough that we just, try to show up every week and just let the story tell it's, itself. Cause it's, it's such pretty, a, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's also, I think you guys do a good job of, of, of really drawing some stuff out that I don't think people really understand. And the, it's funny, the Brainiac thing, um, you know, I've been, uh, in touch with, there's a documentary guy who wants, he's going to make a documentary about Brainiac, a film. Hmm. Oh, and I sent him a link to the thing. I said, this is weird. It's like there's – and a couple other people have reached out. Like on Instagram, people have like put up 
a Brainiac record. Listening to this record, it's so great. And I'm like, there's a weird thing going on now. Yeah. That Brainiac is being, there's a weird renaissance going on. We were just talking to Tim Casher from Cursive, and he, he noticed that we had just done the review and talked about them being an influence on them. And yeah, like we didn't we did talk about any other bands. You know, that's the band that he, he brought up. And and it was just, a, I think, a week after we had done the episode. So, yeah, there's definitely seems to be um, that name keeps popping up for sure. Yeah. Well, it, one of the things that makes me chuckle is um, I think it was after Venus Luxure had come out, we actually went on tour opening for the Jesus Lizard for for a couple of weeks. It was it was kind of a while. And the first band on was Brainiac. Oh wow. So it, yeah. <laughs> I was like, those kids got their motherfucking money's worth, man. Brainiac, Girls Against Boys, and Jesus Lizard. Mm. That is a motherfucking show. And also, I never worked so hard in my life because Brainiac were so unbelievably good live. So they would go out there and they would just tear it up. And then we're like, shit, we're in between these two bands. We cannot. So we would just play our asses off every night. And then Jesus would come out and just completely destroy everything. I was like, man, that's some lucky kids out there. Mm -hmm. Not kids anymore, of course, but. <laughs> they're they're forty year old guys that are forty year old guys like man the greatest band, greatest show I ever saw man. <laughs> yep, those they're are probably our people. some of our patrons. Yep, <laughs> those are absolutely our people. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that the the fun thing about doing this podcast is that I think Jay and I were both kind of burned out on the nineties when we got into the two thousands initially. Like we didn't want to mm -hmm. listen to grunge. We didn't want to like we were all into like. We wanted to listen to like Swedish punk rock and like uh -huh. you know we wanted to get completely away from the '90s. And I have only in the last couple of years started like picking up records that I didn't, I never bothered to own back then. So like I now own Venus Luxure on vinyl, the, like the Touch and Go vinyl, because mm -hmm. I was like, well, I never owned it. I gotta, I gotta get that copy. <laughs> and then like I found, I found. I think I mentioned in the podcast, I might have mentioned my actually my favorite Girls Against Boys record is Freakonica because that's the one that I discovered the band on. And I tracked wow, down yeah, I tracked so down fun. the vinyl and it's on a it's a double yeah. trans like a translucent pulled. blue yeah. vinyl. Yeah. How did you guys get that made in nineteen ninety eight? Like there's no way that any other band in nineteen ninety eight got a double gatefold translucent blue vinyl like there is there was no vinyl at that point and you guys somehow that, got it on a major label yeah that i think because we had carved that out in the contract that they had to put out vinyl and so i think they actually subcontracted that to a smaller label that actually did that i i remember something like that but that that was a weird moment in girls against boys i mean you got to remember so we did the tropica scorpio record and then we did those three touch and go records in fairly fast succession. Mm -hmm. Yep. Almost one every 18 months, I want to say. I mean, it, it, that's a crazy pace. Um, you know, and, and touring, touring, touring our asses off. I mean, it, it, it was kind of bonkers. And so then 
on the last before the last record uh, before the last touch and go record we were already getting courted pretty heavily by the by the major labels and so um yeah i'm just i'm just trying to think here it's like Tropic Scorpio, Venus Luxure came out in 93. Cruise Yourself came out in 94. Yep. I don't even know how, how that's even possible. <laughs> and then and then House of GVSB came out in 96. So it's almost like kind of every two years we would have a record out. And then Freakonica came out in 98. I mean, by the time that's from 92 to 98, just a tremendous amount of touring and writing and playing and you know we get to geffen and that freakonica record and i am just a burnt cinder of a person like it's it's just brutal touring that much you know especially because the, the reality was we were not um we were we were not touring in any kind of big expensive way we we right. stayed we've stayed at basically every motel six in the country you know like were you hauling your own gear and yeah, all that? yeah yeah we we had we had just a, a we only had a tour bus once on Geffen on only on one tour where, where we were opening up for garbage and the great thing about that tour it was a long tour it was like two, I want to say two and a half months but it, maybe it maybe it was shorter than that but somewhere in the middle of that tour was when there was a big merger of the corporations above, 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 above Geffen. And so, um, basically Geffen and Interscope were competitors and all of a sudden they were the same company. And so, so basically Interscope had just had some big hit record that year and so basically the decision was made they were going to shut down Geffen, or at least that was the rumor. So everyone immediately bailed. Everyone who worked at that company just left. So we're on tour, about four weeks into a bus tour with Geffen, and there's literally no one answering. You could call the main number at Geffen and no one would answer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there was a lot of people still working there, but just not enough to run the company. Because so many people had just been like, I, I see this coming. I'm going to jump ship before I get. I, you don't want to be the last person, you know? Right. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> and so luckily we were being managed by Gold Mountain, you know, like John John Silva. And so they kind of swung into action. And, but it was kind of a, it was a total mess. It was really funny. I was just like, I am done with this, you know? I have to do something else with my life. Is that why there was the hiatus between that and then the the Jade Tree album in 2002? Yeah, a little bit. I also got married and had a kid, our first child. And then we you know, we we're like let's just keep this going and so so we made another record for Jade Tree that you can't fight what you can't see um which came out in 2002, right? Something yep. like that. And then um yeah, then I I also, here's the other thing I've neglected to tell you is early on, we were listening to a lot of industrial and punk music, but as time progressed, especially sort of in the mid nineties, I really started listening to a lot of dance music, like a lot of electronic music, house music and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why Free Conica had a lot more keyboards and stuff like that, because this is kind of stuff that I was listening to and trying to somehow integrate it into, into that thing. But then when we made the Jade Tree record, I was like, the the Free Conica record got such a bad reception at the time that I was that we kind of went back towards to a more sort of punk sound where you can't fight. So, so you could have been um, on our roundtable when we did Electronica in 1997. Yeah, that was literally <laughs> our last episode. Yeah, we just did that. We just talked about uh, Chemical Brothers and Daft Punk and all those bands oh from 1997. No yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude, I was so into the Chemical Brothers. I, was, I think I was uh, doing a lot of chemicals at the time, so I think that's kind of... <laughs> well, I mean, the thing I love about that record is that it sounds like futuristic and but still of the time like, i don't i don't, I don't know how to describe it but it sounds like it should be like the soundtrack to like a club in blade runner like you know what i mean like it, it has this like weird film noir kind of feel to it and it's like yeah sci-fi sounding and i just it's yeah. it's yeah it's kind of weird and if you're a, a dedicated fan noir yeah yeah if you're a dedicated fan of the band you'll be like what is this but like since I came into it kind of fresh and like maybe hearing a song or two before that, but not really like being a hardcore fan, like I didn't have any preconceived notions of what it was supposed to sound like. So I was just like, oh, this is cool. Like, well, the, of course, the the funny thing is like, I think that that record still has sold more than any other record of our it was other on a major. I guess so. It is kind of funny though because we're like, really? I mean, Venus Luxure is the one that everyone talks about critically. Right, but that that one still sold more. Hmm. It's, yeah, go figure. Maybe it's a distribution. Yeah, that would be my guess because there's a lot of bands in the '90s that we've covered where the it was really the you know the album that came out on the major label, whether they were on a minor or independent before that or after that. It's always the major label album that people kind of gravitate towards because that's the one they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Yeah. We should um right. we're getting uh we're well past our forty minute time timeline here, so Yeah. <laughs> we should try to uh try I'm to being put a, rude to my friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. I have That's one right. one nerdy question to ask. This is one of those, you know this is one of those nerd questions where we're gonna go deep in the weeds. I have a question about the cover of Boogie Wonderland that you did for the two hundred cigarette soundtrack. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. basically just let me come back with the words from Boogie Wonderland over top of it. What? No. <laughs> so what was the what was the thought process behind taking well, an existing mean, song from 6 years ago and going, well, he could just sing the lyrics over the music we've already written. Dude, I mean, imagine you know for <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what to tell you. Uh, although, um, I can neither confirm nor deny that. But imagine if you were asked to do you. They wanted you to be in this movie, but they wanted you to do a cover of Boogie Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And you were just like, "Have you heard our music? Like, are you <laughs> out of your mind? Like, great song, but we're not that band. Like, we can barely play our instruments, and like." But I can only speak for myself. Those guys are actually good. But like, 
I, I, you know, we were just like, what do we do with this song? Like, we can't play this song. And then we tried a dip bunch of different versions. And then we were just like, I don't even know how it began. We're, if we're rehearsing for a show or something. And I started singing Boogie Wonderland over it. I think as, <laughs> just as a joke. As a joke. And we're like, oh, my God, we should totally do that. Because uh, also, it's really, this is really bad. I I regret having these feelings now, but you know, like the problem is when you come from a from a sort of DIY punk rock aesthetic and you start moving into the music industry world, where there's just so much like sycophantic kind of like, oh my god, your band is amazing, you're so amazing, everything's so amazing, I love your band, <laughs> I love everything you've done, you guys are the greatest, and we're just like you really have never heard our band. You guys should do a cover of Boogie Wonderland. It'd be a great idea. It's like, wait a minute. You, you've never, you say you're, you're our biggest fan, but you've never heard a single note. And so I think it was a little bit like, let's just do this song and see if anyone notices. And <laughs> no one noticed. No one noticed. Until you, songs. right now. No, I'm just, <laughs> a couple of people have pointed out, it's like, isn't that the same song? We're like, yeah, we should sue ourselves, right? Yeah. The only reason I know <laughs> is because I have a Spotify playlist for the band. And one time... Yeah those two songs came on back to back and I went, no, what the hell? <laughs> and that's the only reason I literally, that's the only reason I caught it. You know, there's a, there's a funny footnote to that because we, that was a really fun doing that movie scene. It was, it was really great. And, um, uh, we went to the rap party for that film and, you know, there's all these, all these big, celebrities in that movie mm -hmm. who were not who weren't that big celebrities at the time they right. were moderate some of them were but um i just remember walking around there and like it was super hollywood in that people would kind of look at you like are you somebody i should like someone in i mean and then they would just be like no you're nobody like Ugh. you could just see it on their face and i was like god this is super gross i'm standing at the bar and sitting standing next to me is casey affleck and i'm like hey and he's like hey man how's it going and we ended up just hanging out and chatting he was super cool he's the only person who would talk to me at that that party and i was like casey affleck yeah he's all right and now he's <laughs> up for an oscar and now he's up for an oscar i was like couldn't have happened to a nicer guy i mean <laughs> it's funny because you know that was a long time ago i'm sure he's a different person but it, it is. That was my one little story about that doing that movie, and also sitting next to uh, Christina Ricci in the uh, makeup chair and just talking her ear off about the ice storm. Remember this movie with Kevin Klein and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going. That was a great movie. You were so great. And blah 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 blah. And she's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> we should have talked about the Adams family. That would have been the move. Well, I think it was before that. Was it? Yeah. Oh, think about that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't, I don't know. All right. I should probably go. All right. Um, but hey, guys, that was super fun. Um, I just want to say I'm available anytime if you want to do some other dumb roundtable. Not dumb. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> well, well, shit. Yeah. I, I wish we would. Seriously, I wish we would have had you on the electronica one. We just did that yeah. about a week ago. So, yeah. So, yeah. Just, 
count me in, man. Just, I, just it'd be fun. I want to do. I'm trying to do more stuff outside of the show. So, like, anytime you want me to sit in, I know what we need to do is we need to review the Trenchmouth album or one of the Trenchmouth albums and have you on <laughs> cr- going critically through that record, like dub reggae. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I I've had a few discussions with Fred about Trenchmouth, and he's like. Yeah, I, I mean, I listened to that record, and I'm like, what were we trying to do? What was the point? <laughs> just taking anything that could have been good and making it terrible just just because. <laughs> oh, my God. His comments about it are really funny. So we should, what we should do is we should do trend, choose a trench mouth record, and we should do that. And then we'll get Fred on in the end. Okay. Make a comment about it. It'd be super funny. I would love for him to hear the review and then have to react to it. We like, oh, so you, you guys didn't like my drumming. Oh. Okay. <laughs> it's him. Get, yeah, we can. Uh, and a lot of these records, like, because there's no, there's very little documentation on any of this, right? So, yes, yeah, sometimes Tim and I have to just surmise how we think this may have come together. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so we can just it's do great. that for the time. Well, it's even worse now. I mean, now it's like you mix a record, you produce a record, nobody fucking knows. And there's no way to find out. Yeah. yeah. Unless 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 it ends up on Wikipedia or uh, you know, all music or something like that. There, there's there, there's no there's no credits to anything. I, I would get work. I pre that back in the day. <laughs> I would get work because people would look at the credits and be like, oh, Eli Janney makes this record. And then they would, you know, find me. Not forget it. You yeah. Know? That's weird. That's because, you know, it was hard to find people back then. There wasn't an internet to look it up. And now there's an internet wow, and people can't easy. find you. You can't. There isn't it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, Jay, thanks so much. That was super fun. Thanks Thank so much. I want to let people know they're listening. EliJanney.com. You can go there, and on his hire me page, it says "make me your make me yours for the night." I'm not sure entirely what that means. What? Uh, did it you does know that? Say that? It says no. that. It makes you sound like a gigolo. Do you, do you have a pimp? <laughs> I've probably been hacked. Who knows? You might you have, have been a webmaster hacked. or a pimp. I like it. Hire me for the night. Oh, I'm I'm gonna find out who did that. <laughs> And you can uh, you can follow Eli on Twitter at DJ EJ New York City. That's right. Thanks. Or I, yeah, you can also find me on Instagram at Eli Janney. That's probably easier. And Instagram, yes. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing this. this. Was awesome. Really enjoyed getting to go out and talk about all this stuff. And when we get yeah, to the Trench Mouth episode, we will. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Yes. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.